0: Let's pray. God, theme of this morning so far has been grace. and focusing on your grace, your goodness to us. So I pray, Lord, that as we want to continue that discussion right now by looking at Ruth chapter 2, the study that we're in, that, uh, God, there would not be one of us here this morning, not one of us, who would walk out of here at least not having an understanding of your grace to us and the call that you give us to pass it on. So that's our prayer. Meet us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's an awesome thing when you see and experience real grace, isn't it? I mean, it just touches something very deep inside us when we see someone do something for another person or care for them, especially when they don't deserve it. And that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. It's simply doing something for somebody when they deserve it the least. Uh, Years ago when I was in seminary, uh, Kim and I didn't have two nickels to rub together, This was back in the mid-1980s, and uh, at one point my pastor's son, who was living in Chicago with his wife at that time, invited Kim and I down to the city for a wonderful dinner out and to go see the production Les Miserables. Some of you have seen it before. And I'll never forget that evening, it was a wonderful evening we spent with some dear friends, a real grace move on his part, a- and the play captivated me. It was set in France in the early 19th century, it was during an economy and a culture that was a lot tougher than ours. There were some haves and many have-nots back then and Jean Valjean was the main character. You might remember the story. He had just got done spending 19 years in prison doing hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread. He was hungry and was given 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And He'd been recently released and as you can imagine he was a very angry and hardened man. And early on in the story he knocks on the door of a local town bishop's house and he was received in and given a meal and a bed for a night. Again, a a grace move. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and decides to leave, but before he does, he decides to steal some articles from this bishop's house that he could pawn later for money. And I want you to watch up here on the screen what happens next from the 1998 movie uh, studio version of Les Miserables. It's a powerful scene of grace. Look up here on the screen.
1: Is anybody there? Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved.
2: Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand, the bishop?
1: Madam know, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you.
0: you've gone to the play or read the book or seen the movie you know that what just happened is the turning point for Jean Valjean and the message of the entire script namely that grace when given and received has the power to change the trajectory of one's life. I mean from this point on in the story Jean Valjean goes on in that from that one powerful encounter with human and divine grace to a life that is truly transformed. He actually goes on to become the mayor of a small, poor town and provides meaningful work for hundreds of people in the town. And throughout the rest of the story, it chronicles Valjean's interplay with some key individuals and how he passes on this grace that he has now received. People who were equally unworthy of it as he originally was. His life was altered. He was brought to God. And the whole point of the story is that it all goes back to grace. And so we're in week two of a four-week series on the Old Testament book of Ruth entitled Do the Right Thing. And last week, if you were with us, you know that we looked at the importance of choosing to follow God no matter what. And this week, we're going to look at the power of grace and even more the call that God gives to you and to me to pass on to others this powerful grace that as I'm going to show you, he's already given to us. And so if you want to pull out your outlines and open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 2, I want to share with you just two simple truths today that I think you're going to latch on to for your own life that come right out of the text here, right out of the storyline uh, out of Ruth, chapter 2. And we're going to park here for all of our time this morning in Ruth 2. And so here's the first point, and then we'll read the scripture, and that is that so many of us have been given great Grace. So many of us have been given great grace. Or for each of these two points, I'm going to say it even more simply and put more simply, we are so blessed. Can you own that today? We are so blessed. If you remember from last week in Ruth chapter 1, we saw that there was a severe famine in the land of Israel. As a result of this, a particular godly family decided to go to the next country over, the country of Moab, seeking relief, and while they were there for the ten years, the father died, the two sons married Moabite women, they were in Moab, and then the two sons died, leaving a total of three widows, and one of the widows, a young woman by the name of Ruth, who was a Moabite, decides to trust Almighty God and head back to Israel with the matriarch of the family, Naomi. And so we're left at the end of chapter 1 with Ruth and Naomi arriving back in Bethlehem near Jerusalem, penniless, husbandless, and wondering what's going to happen next. And so let's read what happens next in the next few verses, the first few verses of Ruth chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, look up here on the screen. Otherwise, follow along with me in your Bible. Ruth chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz." And Ruth, said, or, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now pause right there. Now, I'm going to get to in a minute what all this gleaning and reaping and harvesting thing is about. But simply for right now, what I want you to focus on is that guy, Boaz. Boaz. And I want you to notice with me very specifically that Boaz was greatly blessed by God. In other words, simply see that on multiple levels, Boaz had been given great grace to him by God. So for instance, notice with me that he was a physically strong man. He was a physically strong man. How do we know that? Well, Boaz, in the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, his name literally means strong. It's the same Hebrew word that describes the pillars in front of the Old Testament temple that held it up, described about in 1 Kings chapter 7. His name connotes a man of physical strength and physical stature. Boaz had been blessed by God in his health and the fact that he was strong. That's what his name means. That's what the author is trying to communicate to us here. And then notice further that Boaz was also a wealthy and influential man. It says again there in verse 1 that he was a worthy man. Again, that literally means a, a man of wealth and reputation. You see, in that culture, land ownership was critical. It created wealth. And it gave someone a heightened status. And Boaz, the author is making very clear here, was a man who owned like a lot of land. And in owning land, this gave him a wealth and reputation in his culture and in his community. So we got a guy of physical stature, a guy of wealth and influence. And then, as if all of this were not enough, notice a third key thing about this guy Boaz. And that is that he was a spiritual man. Interesting. He was a spiritual man. It says there in verse 1, and then it repeats it in verse 3, that he was of the clan of Elimelech. Do you see there? The clan of Elimelech. And now you might remember from last week, Elimelech also uh, means something, his name meant something, and that is his name meant that God is king. And so we know that Boaz was a part of a very godly family. He had a godly heritage that was passed down to him from other relatives. We assume that Boaz was probably a nephew of Elimelech, but that this also rubbed off on him. And we know that it rubbed off on him because look again at verse 4, we find him saying to his workers, the Lord be with you the Lord be with you. That's the word Jehovah in the original Hebrew. It's simply a blessing that God's presence and activity would be felt and seen among the workers. In other words, this guy was a good boss, and he was very spiritual with his employees, putting a blessing upon them, and they would return the blessing when they say, well, the Lord also bless you. I mean, don't miss this, folks. This is obviously describing a man here who was given some pretty awesome things by God. Health, a livelihood that provided well for him, a heritage of knowing and walking with God, his maker. And you know what the simple yet easy to miss point is in all of this? And that is that most of us here today have likewise been given great grace. We likewise have been blessed by God. In other words, in our day and age, in our current cultural setting, I would submit to you that many of us are very similar to Boaz. We really are that when you look at our lives compared to the rest of the world, and even one could argue our lives compared to the rest of the country, we too can identify with Boaz that even in a down economy, we look around and we say, man, are we just blessed. And many of us don't think we are at times, but when we open our eyes and look around and take an honest look at our lives, we see this. I mean, just think with me about some of the similar ways that the average American, the average person living in Scottsdale and Phoenix is blessed as Boaz was blessed. I mean, most of us here today have been blessed physically. We're blessed physically. And even if you're struggling with some sort of illness here today, I would submit to you that compared to the rest of the world, because of our health care system in our country here today, you likewise are greatly blessed. Some of you are saying right now, I can't believe you just mentioned the health care system. Is he really going to get into that? Of course not. I don't do that, as you guys know. So I don't care where you fall on the health care debate right now. And Spectrum, here's my point. When you look at the stats, no matter where you land, we are a blessed country when it comes to health care. Amen? We are. Listen to the 2008 numbers that were just released by the Healthcare Financing Administration. Last year in 2008, our country, when you consider Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance, as well as out of pocket, spent $2.2 trillion on healthcare. Let that sit in a minute. $2.2 trillion that we spent as Americans on healthcare, that averages out to $7,421 per person in our country. That equals 16.2% of our gross domestic product that we spent on health care. And somebody's saying, well, I'm still sick. We'll get to that in a minute. You eat too much pizza. But the reality is, is that even if you're sick in this country, you're going to fare a lot better than the rest of the world. Amen? We, we buried one of our elders yesterday, Bill Miller, a good man, a godly man, and uh, his time was too soon to go. Uh, for all of us concerned. He was about 65 years old. He was one of the pastors here at our church and it was just a powerful funeral, a powerful time for us to spend time focusing on God and worshiping Him and remembering Bill's life. And one of the things that his wife said to me over the last four months since he got cancer was uh, how quickly he went but also how blessed that they felt to have these last four months with their husband and with their father. How blessed they felt. To have four months knowing that he was going to go be with the Lord, to say their goodbyes and and to be with each other and just precious, precious times. And do you know what, in part, God used to keep Bill alive for four months? Chemotherapy, doctor's help, the skill and wisdom that we have today in our country. I was at a reception afterward talking with somebody, and they told me they had a relative who's lived seven years with ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. I thought, seven years with Lou Gehrig's disease? How does that happen? Most of the illnesses that you and I have today, if we lived in another part of the world, we'd be with the Lord by now. If we lived 100 years ago, we'd be with the Lord by now. The reality is, like Boaz, just by living in this country, you're greatly blessed on a health level. We need to recognize that. And then, secondly, note that Boaz, who was blessed materially, I would submit to you that we likewise are blessed materially. Again, we don't think we are because of the recession right now, but comparatively, what we need to realize is that most of us can relate to Boaz in being blessed on a material level. And so check this out. 1995, which is the last stat I've been able to find out about pizza. Remember, I'm going to mention pizza. Uh, Pizza sales in the United States were a record 31 billion dollars. Let that sink in a minute. Americans spent $31 billion in 1995 on pizza. That's why we have health problems, but we won't go into that, right? And when you consider that, consider this. Worldwide, 1.3 billion people live on less than $1 a day, the cost of about one slice of pizza. This from Bread for the World. The average American this year is going to spend 9.8% of their income on food, while the average African will spend 80% of his or her income on food. The median household income in the United States in 2007 was $50,233 for the year, the highest level ever recorded in a current population survey in real terms. By the way, the median household income from Scottsdale is $69,000 last year, $75,000 this year, well above the median for the country. I mean, no matter how you slice it, folks, compared to the rest of the world, even compared to the rest of the country, you and I are greatly blessed. We can relate to Boaz. And so we're blessed physically, we're blessed materially, and many, if not most of us, can own this too, like Boaz, are blessed spiritually. We're blessed spiritually. I mean, we live in a country today that has Christian roots. Is that not awesome? We live in a country today in which our our founders of our nation, many of them, tried to protect religious freedom, to say for generations to come that we want you to be able to hear spiritual and religious truth and not have repercussions because of this. So the reality is, is that we live in a country today in which being persecuted for our faith is very, very rare. I mean, when I read 2 Timothy 3.12 that says, count it all joy when you're persecuted for your faith, I feel guilty. How about you? I mean, I sit there and go, persecuted for my faith? I mean, I'm living in America. I don't get persecuted for my faith. The worst I get is that my kids can't pray in school, and I have to raise a stink to try to get them to pray in school. That's about the extent of persecution that we have in our country. And there's more, I know. But again, compared to the rest of the world, we're really blessed spiritually. And on a personal level, most of us here today have been given grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ for salvation, and we've responded. In other words, we're Christians here today, and we've been blessed and graced by God into salvation. We're blessed by God spiritually. So don't miss this, folks. Like Boaz in his day, most of us have been given great grace by God. We are blessed. And please hear this. The point is not to feel guilty about our blessings. Don't you hate it when people do that? I do. I hate it when people say, well, you're blessed and you know, make you feel guilty. No, that's not what we're saying here at all. Uh, we're so simply noting here is that it's good to be blessed, it's a blessing to be blessed. But that when we look closer at the scriptures, we realize that all of us have been blessed for a reason. And this leads to the second thing that Boaz shows us here in Ruth 2, and it's the last thing I want to leave you with, and that is that the purpose of being given grace is to pass it on to others. Did you know that? The purpose of why you have been given grace by God, why you are born where you were, is that you might pass it on to others. Or, again, to put it more simply, we have been given blessings in order to be a blessing. You know, probably one of the biggest tragedies of grace is that so many people today see grace as the old Christian rocker Randy Stonehill used to say, is a place to wipe our feet. That's what we do with grace. In other words, we seek out grace and we find it in Jesus Christ and then we bask in it and we thank Him for it, we sing about it in church, and then we do very little to really significantly pass it on to others. In other words, we've seen grace as simply a place to wipe our feet as we thank God for it, not as a place to pass it on to others. Uh, study after study, folks, shows that Christians don't forgive very easily, at least on issues that really matter. Studies show that we don't share our faith very often or courageously, even though heaven and hell hangs in the balance for most people around us. And we don't practice what one Christian author calls love of another kind, in which we commit radical acts of kindness with those in our sphere of influence. And yet Boaz, what I need you to see, didn't see it this way at all. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to look with me at how this very blessed man responded to Ruth. Let's look a bit more intricately with this uh, when it came to the grace that he showed her. Uh, I want you to look at how Boaz responded to this undeserving foreign woman who happens to wander into his field. Look at how it goes on to describe this in verses 5 through 7 of Ruth 2. It says, Then Boaz said to this young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now pause there. What I simply need to see at this point, folks, is that there is no reason at all for Boaz to care or even take more than a passing glance at Ruth. I mean, she's simply a poor person taking advantage of her legal right under Mosaic law to follow behind the harvesters who were picking up grain, corn, and barley and picking up whatever in in what was left and dropped behind. You see, the law clearly said that if somebody was harvesting their crops in their field, that whatever fell behind, whatever was dropped behind, they couldn't pick up. They had to leave it for some poorer person or a foreigner in their midst who wanted to glean, we call it gleaning, the sheaves in order to get food for their selves. And so what Boaz was doing here, what Ruth was doing here, was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing unusual at all for Israelite society. And yet look at what Boaz does next. Because not only does he not take, note, or does he take notice of Ruth, but he gives and passes on grace. And I mean grace in multiple forms. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what you have what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? No, Mrs. Folks, two words that sum up the grace given to Ruth by Boaz here, and they are provision and protection. That's what he provides for her. Provision and protection. The two things that God had given to him, he now passes on to her. He says, stay in the field and glean freely. Hang with the other young women and follow them. Make sure that you drink water. It's a grace of provision. He provides for her out of the grace that God had provided for him. And then he further says, and the young men aren't going to touch you. Because you see, even a young foreign woman in Israel back then needed the grace of protection. Boaz had been given grace by God, and now he provides the same grace to Ruth. And yet it doesn't stop there. Look quickly at what verses 14 to 17 go on to say that Boaz does even further. It says, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out from some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And so track this, folks. I mean, there's grace all through this. At mealtime, he treats her like one of the family and has her join them for a meal. And then he tells the workers to do two things. This is powerful. He says to allow her to actually reap, not just glean. In other words, pick the actual grain, not just what falls. And then he says when she is reaping, by the way, just make sure you drop a little bit more for her, so that her and Naomi have enough. And as a result of all of this, Ruth takes back to Naomi an ephah of grain or barley. Anybody here know what an ephah is? I didn't, so I had to look it up. And Bible experts estimate that an ephah is about 20 to 25 pounds or four and three-quarter gallons of grain. I mean, that's a lot of grain for two widowed women, That's what Boaz gave her. I mean, this couldn't have helped his profit-loss comparison, could it? I mean, please see, folks. It's grace, undeserved mercy and care. God had given it to Boaz, and he's passing it on to Ruth. And we have evidence that he passed it on to a lot of other people, too, because his workers liked him so much. Remember that in verse 4? He said, the Lord be with you. They said, the Lord bless you. Interesting. Like they're saying, hey, God, bless this dude Boaz even more because he passes his blessings on to the rest of us. And so they wanted him to be blessed. And once you get this, the key question, if you're at all a cynic like me, and I think the author actually intended us to think this, is to ask the question, why did Boaz really do this for Ruth? Can you think about that with me for a minute? Because, you see, if you've read ahead in chapter 3, we're going to see that there actually becomes an attraction between these two people and so we got to ask was was this what was motivating boaz here in chapter two was this just some ploy to get a young woman is that what was going on here and i don't think so some of you noticed earlier that i skipped uh, some verses so once you look at verses 10 through 13 right now right after boaz gives ruth this first wave of grace this provision and protection wave Look at what happens next in verses 10 through 13. It says, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? It's the same question we're asking. It says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have now come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Just very quickly, notice here that that obviously Ruth and Boaz both know that this grace transfer is going on here. Three times it uses the word favor in chapter 2 here. The fact that Boaz has shown favor or grace to Ruth. And so they're both just clearly admitting that grace is being passed on here. But then secondly, notice that the reason that that Boaz is passing on this grace is simply because he wants to pass on grace. In other words, though though Boaz did have some reasons for being so kind, in the end, they still weren't enough to warrant grace being given. Please see this, folks. They weren't. I mean, verse 11 there makes it very clear that, that, that Boaz did have reasons for being so kind to Ruth. I mean, he says that, hey, you left Moab and you stayed faithful to Naomi and you've converted to the one true God of Israel. But think about it. Israel had plenty of converts. I mean, there was provision in the law for people who would convert to Yahwehism, to the, to the religion of Israel. And so this alone did not warrant somebody showing so much grace like Boaz did. And lots of people stayed with extended family after death. In fact, quite frankly, it was really the thing to do back then, that if you were a a daughter-in-law and your husband died and you were living with the extended family, you usually would stay with them. It was actually Orpah who did kind of the, the unusual thing. And we have ample evidence that other foreigners had embraced the one true God of Israel. So in the end, please see, it was at best partially merited Boaz's kindness to Ruth, but he certainly didn't have to show her the favor that he did. And so that makes it grace. Uh, Boaz didn't owe Ruth any of this, but he chose to give it to her nonetheless. And when someone does that, it's called grace. And let me reiterate, he wasn't looking for a date. Do we all understand that? He wasn't looking for a date. He calls her daughter there in verse 8. And as we're going to see in chapter 3, this was the furthest thing from his mind. He was actually a bit older than her. And so he wasn't thinking on that level at all. He was just showing kindness, passing grace on to another woman. It was grace given, favor. And he didn't have to give it. He chose to because God had given it to him and he wanted to bless others. And so the point becomes this, and this is what I want to leave you with here this morning, and that is if there is any truth to point one, that grace has been given to you and me, and I think that there is, then we too must pass it on every chance we get. And the whole point of Ruth 2, the need to walk away with, is that we as well must become deliverers of grace, practicing what 1 Peter 4.10 refers to as faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms that's what you and i are called to when it comes to our lives and though there are so many ways we can do this as we get down to the short strokes may i suggest just three ways that if you're going to take me up take god up on his offer here of passing on the grace that he has given to you three ways that you can do this you ready for this look up here on the screen the first way is this and that is through forgiveness or through acts of kindness through acts of kindness in other words just following what boaz did and showing kindness to people around you with the wonderful grace that God has given you. Now, how many of you remember about 10 years ago, I think it was, where a guy came out with a book called The Prayer of Jabez. Give me a hand raise if you remember that book. And I, I remember that book came out, and ironically, right at that time, I was studying the book of Ruth and and you know the prayer of jabez was a good book but you know it's based on a very obscure passage in the old testament and and in the end i think one of the reasons it died down kind of quick is because it was a relatively can i say this a little bit of a selfish prayer that you'd pray if you remember what it was about because you're saying to god you know bless me god expand my kingdom and all this other stuff and yes the end of it was so that you might help others but but it was really focused on on sort of me and god and god blessing me and, and expanding my kingdom And that was kind of the gist of it. And I remember when that book came out and I was studying uh, Ruth, I kind of wished I had the reputation of that author because I would have written a sequel to it called The Deeds of Boaz. Forget about the prayer of Jabez. I thought, really, if you want to get the heart of the Old Testament, it would be the deeds of Boaz. That if we're to emulate anything in the Bible, it's to be the deeds of this spiritual leader, this wealthy and influential man, this, this physically strong man, Boaz and do deeds just like he did and and, and what are we talking about we're talking about things like practical help financial help encouraging words all the things that boaz did that we see him doing here we likewise are to do it's the deeds of boaz and you and i can do that as i thought about our church you know i thought and this should encourage you guys because i'm not trying to be hard on you here today i'm really not just giving you what i see the word saying here but you know, you know what's so cool about Scottsdale Bible Church is that we have a history of doing exactly this, don't we? We really do. Uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to come to Scottsdale Bible Church here and be your pastor is because our church has a rich history under Darrell's leadership and many others of doing these kinds of acts of kindness, being involved in our community, and, and just pouring into other people on a grace level. Uh, more than 20 organizations of a regional, national na- nature have been spawned out of this church. Organizations that do nothing but help people. We've linked arms with Neighborhood Ministries, Phoenix Rescue Mission, and many other places in helping those in need. And here's my only plea. Let's keep that going and growing. Amen? I mean, therein lies so much of our witness of grace by, by doing the deeds of Boaz. And so whatever that means for you, as you see opportunities more and more to serve, Let's just do that. It's through acts of kindness that we show God's grace. Now, that one actually is is kind of easy. Ready for number two? This one's really hard. And that is that we also show show grace, grace through forgiveness. We show it through forgiveness. Something Christians, by the way, aren't really all that good at. Think about the logic of this with me. I mean, the heart of our relationship with God, of coming back to our creator, is redemption, right? It's the forgiveness of our sins. If you don't understand that, I don't mean to be rude, but you're not a Christian. I mean, the whole heart of Christianity is the fact that that we are sinners, the saved by grace, and that God has shown us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that when you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you now experience that forgiveness, that purity of soul. And yet it doesn't stop there. As you all know, the Bible goes on to say, And he who has been forgiven much should now forgive a lot in their lives right so the logic would be this that christians should be like leading the way when it comes to forgiveness give me an amen to that that's what we do we're like in the forgiveness business if we have one thing one commodity that we're marketing that we're passing on to other people like duh it'd be forgiveness and so more than anything track this we should be known as forgiving people but we're not especially when it comes to the things that matter most, we are very much like the world, we have trouble letting go of it. We have trouble letting go when people really hurt us. I remember Josh McDowell, is a Christian leader, told a very honest story years ago about how when he first became a Christian, he, uh, he had a lot of problems with his dad. He was raised in a home where his dad was not very nice, and I think he had alcoholism. He's been uh, totally forthcoming about this whole story, and, and one of the things he realized is he needed to forgive his dad for what he had done to him growing up, And so he tells a story that at one point, when he was an early Christian, he sat down and he wrote this, like, eight-page letter forgiving his dad. And for the first seven and three-quarters pages, he told his dad all the things that he did wrong to him. He basically said, you did this and this and this, and now I felt, and here's how I'm at him, just seven and three-quarters pages. And at the very end, he said, but I become a Christian, and I now forgive you, love, Josh. And his point is, is, is that really forgiveness? Is that really letting go of it? Or was that more of a cathartic thing for him as a young Christian? And then he went on in this talk to talk about the fact that, that we really need to learn to let go, to let go of people's hurts against us. How do you do that? And the scriptures are very clear in how you do it. And that is that the more you understand how much God has forgiven you, the more you really experience that, the more you see how sinful you really are, and the more you realize how grace-filled God really is, the more you're gonna let go of it from other people. In other words, get this, the reason that most of us don't forgive is because we really haven't experienced God's forgiveness of us. We really haven't experienced His grace. As Brennan Manning writes about, we've really not seen our lives as ragamuffins, and God is the great grace giver. Because if we did, then we'd wake up every day and we'd say, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much God has forgiven me and let go of my sin. I can't wait to return the favor and forgive others in my life today. That's what it all boils down to so the challenge for you and I is not just to obediently show acts of kindness or obediently forgive though it might take that at times it's to experience his grace to realize as Boaz did how much grace has been poured out to bask in that to experience that through worship and through small group experiences with other believers and through your quiet times with God and however we do that and then to realize that he who has been forgiven much can now forgive a lot and then a third way we can show grace and pass along grace is through evangelism through evangelism the greatest gift of all think about it that when you've been given grace by god unto salvation you can now introduce others to the giver of grace himself and again i would just refer you to a couple weeks ago when i talked about evangelism and basically said we don't all need to freak out and think we need to be the next billy graham of scottsdale that all god is asking us to do is be a link in the chain remember that illustration just a link in the chain So it might be through an act of kindness this week. It might be through forgiving someone. It might be through sharing a verbal witness. It might be through through taking someone to church. It might be through buying somebody a cup of coffee and having a question-answer time about Christianity. So many different links. Just be a link this week. Be a link in the process of somebody coming to faith in Christ. So many ways to pass on grace. Here's my question to you. What is God calling you to do? What Ruth has he brought your way lately. As I mentioned in the uh, introduction, uh, the movie version of Les Miserables filled with powerful scenes of grace being passed on. Uh, Valjean eventually becomes the mayor of a small provincial town and he runs into a young gal there by the name of Fantine. Uh, She's a worker in a factory. She was fired for having a child out of wedlock and that child was not with her. She was in another town. So having no money, she resorts to prostitution. She gets very sick. She's finally arrested. And as she's just about to be jailed, Valjean plays some of his cards as the mayor, and he gets her bailed out and released. And yet it doesn't stop there. Fantine is likely going to die, and she's going to die with a lot of shattered dreams and dashed hopes and not seeing her daughter. And so there's still room for grace. And as she's laying there in bed, very, very sick, there's some powerful words exchanged between Valjean and Fantine. I want you to look up her in the screen. Then we're going to read the rest of Ruth, too, and then we're going to pray. Look up here on the screen.
2: But I don't understand why i are being so kind. I was preoccupied. I didn't know if you'd come straight to me. None of this. You need to rest. Don't worry. I'll bring your daughter to you. you
1: Are going to the Genardiers?
2: No, I can't. I'll send the money to bring us out here. She can't live with me. Of course she can. She will. She'll attend the school and uh, you won't have any more worries. When you're better, I'll find work for you.
1: But you don't understand. I'm a whore. And it has
2: the father. She has the Lord. He is her father. And you are his creation. In his eyes, you've never been anything but an innocent and beautiful woman.
0: One of the side benefits maybe it's a direct result of grace is that hope is instilled in the human heart that's what happens when somebody is shown grace and given grace yeah they could trample on it like we've done but the reality is is that it instills hope in people's lives and that's exactly the point of the movie clip that you just saw finally she had hope and that's the point of ruth too Because, you see, due to Boaz's grace, now things are starting to change and look up for these two women. Let me read for you the end of chapter 2. Look at verses 18 through the end of the chapter. It says, And Ruth took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you so she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, Well, the man's name is, that i worked with today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth the daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. We ended chapter 1 in despair, choosing to follow God anyways. That was the point of it. But now we end chapter 2 with things looking up. And why did they look up? Because grace was passed on. And you and I get a chance to do that this week. Why don't you pray with me? Then we're going to take up our elders offering, and then we're going to sing and be done. Father, I thank you that you have shown us great grace. There's no arguing that. And I thank you, God, that in showing us great grace, you ask us to now be carriers of it, to pass it on to those around us. Lord, we've learned some great lessons with Boaz. So, Lord, my simple prayer is that when we think of things like acts of kindness and forgiving those that are hard to forgive in our lives and then evangelizing those who need to hear about the Savior, that, God, I pray that you would indeed cause us to be ones who pass on grace freely. Help us to not be stingy. Help us to not be um, angry. Help us, Lord, to be those who let it go and let your grace go in and through our lives. Thank you that you've shown us grace those of us, Lord, who need to see it more and experience it more, may that be our journey. Even this week, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.